Welcome to this week's Hotel Analyst podcast, where, as usual, you'll find in the next 20 minutes or so us giving you our thoughts on important matters of the moment in and around the hotel space. Uh, the two of us are here as normal. That's me, Chris Bowen, the editor at Hotel Analyst, joined on the line by Andrew Sankster, the editorial director of Hotel Analyst. I'm going to start this week by having a, a word or two about what's going on in the UK hotel investment marketplace um, because we've obviously had a quite interesting time in the last few weeks um, uh, in terms of how the UK economy is performing and um, we've had a very interesting change of of leadership uh, in our governing party there's some interesting attempts to modify government policy which uh, let's face it <laughs> went disastrously uh, and as a result we've had interest rate hikes and all sorts of um, uh, things going on as the markets took the news very very badly uh, the result is of course it makes life a lot more difficult for those who are trying to plan and forecast and uh, particularly for those who are trying to invest uh, but despite all of that um, as we've uh, taken the temperature of of the marketplace uh, deals have been done plenty of deals at the smaller single asset end of the market very little going on in terms of big portfolio deals and it's quite clear at the moment that the uh, by and large private equity investors are not uh, too interested in jumping into the market they're perhaps busy with their current charges and working out what's going on with their energy prices and inflation and under their current portfolios um, but uh, by and large agents are still quite chipper there's still uh, business to be done and those entrepreneurial types who've got a bit of cash behind them and a good lender alongside them are quite able to pick up uh, deals and build their portfolios yeah, I mean, undoubtedly debt is the problem, particularly for the, the portfolio deals, um, and that probably isn't going to be sorted out for a few months yet um, until the rate tightening cycle has concluded. Um, I first want to, uh, an impossible mission, but mm -hmm. to make a slight defence of Liz Truss here. Um, oh, right, okay. <laughs> um, a pretty useless Go over politician. there and stand on your own. <laughs> Yes, I'm quite, I'm quite, uh, the question is, is an inept politician, along with uh, Chancellor Kwasi Kwarteng, completely tone deaf when it comes to reading the mood, um, which is what you need from a politician. But I, I, I think it's as much the Bank of England, now we've written about this previously, it's, it, it's hard to say, it's uh, the, the, the common joke was it was a Kamakwasi uh, budget um, and I actually think it was a bit of bonkers Bailey, um, which is Andrew Bailey, um, head of the Bank of England, um, announcing the day before the mini budget, which turned out to be not so mini a budget, um, but the day before that mini budget, uh, the Bank of England announced 80 billion of gilt uh, sales, the ones it held through quantitative easing, it was going to in conduct con quantitative tightening um, and sell those it owns um, and he wanted to write so that 80 billion joined the similar kind of number that the the government was going to have to raise to fund the mini budget so you had this flood of bonds coming into the market which um, you don't need a degree in economics to understand if you have a flood of a product you're going to see the price go down a bit which mm -hmm. it certainly did and the yield went up which is the cost the government pays on its debt so um, 
just as some numbers on that the two-year swap rates went from 4.7 percent on the day of the mini budget 22nd of september um, and reached a peak of 6.03 percent five days later so it's quite a jump and that sort of jump is really going to unsettle things and and disrupt the market um, the rate has fallen back it's now actually that two-year swap rate I've just quoted is actually now below where it was it's um, um, and we're recording this on uh, Wednesday the 30th and I looked at the number yesterday and it's 4.5 percent um, on the 29th of November so it come come down below that unfortunately we've got a little bit more um, interest rate um, hiking to endure um, now there's different forecasters out there one of the most reliable I find are capital economics and they're suggesting in the UK rates are going to peak at 5% um, quite early in, 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 in next year so sort of by Easterish of uh, um, 2023 um, and then perhaps surprisingly and I certainly don't think this is registered in the market um, capital economics are forecasting a cut in the UK base rate um, right the way back to 3.25% by late 2024 so we're currently at, at 300 bips in terms of the base rate so we're gonna although we're gonna have a 200 bip increase over the next 18 months well, over the next three months um, with um, we'll, by late 24 we'll be back to where we are today um, almost back to where we are today according to capital economics in the eurozone which has an even um, tougher macroeconomic outlook uh, most commentators believe um, rates are expected to peak at three percent and again capital economics reckon they're going to be cut to two percent by late 24 which is well you know it, it, at one level that isn't too bad i mean this is still a very low uh interest rate environment by historic standards but by recent standards it's an enormous rise so you're going from zero um and even negative base rates in some cases in some um um parts of europe um you're going to a situation of um what will shortly be positive real interest rates and that's going to be quite a, a bump i think the good news is that this is all going to feed through we're probably already in recession in the uk and most likely in in the eurozone as well um, this will lead to inflation dropping inflation is going to come right back down capital economics are seeing it in the uk perhaps even head towards zero but certainly um you know pretty much on the two percent target which is uh, favored by the bank of england a touch more perhaps in in continental europe but but that we're going to see that that's going to enable these interest rate cuts there they're predicting um of course that's um you know enabling these interest rate cuts has been a, a dire macroeconomic outlook but uh um there we are um, um you, 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 what you win on the roundabout you lose on the swings kind of thing and that's certainly where we seem to be right now I, I think in terms of deal flow what will enable things to start going again is when this rate tightening cycle ends and there's a bit more clarity in what's going on we do seem to have um, a bit of a disconnect the bank of england actually hit out um, 
in the past week or so at some of the mortgage rates this is more on the residential side saying look there's a disconnect here banks have pushed them up significantly higher than they need to be pushed up right now probably they are where they will need to be by easter but the banks have probably jumped the gun a little bit and got out there early raising rates raising their mortgages uh pricing um too much um i think realistically though that that five six percent is what people are will be paying come easter so but once we see that set at that level I think people will adjust and you know business can restart again uh, in a meaningful way um, there is going to be pain um, there are going to be you know, businesses which have been staggering along and really they've been propped up I think I'd argue by this zero um, rates environment and you've got almost money given away for free um, that period thankfully I would argue is at an end now and we're moving into a period where um, it costs money um, to borrow money and um, there has to be returns generated this is going to um, lead to zombie companies finally you know being put out of their misery um, um, and and there will be um, a, a number of opportunities arising I don't think as we keep repeatedly saying there's gonna be that many bargains because there's so much money waiting to deploy but we will see opportunities and that really is going to get going in earnest probably by Q2 now the next uh, sector we could decide we'd have a look at uh, most recently was uh, what's going on in the Spanish market and either both with absolute luck or impeccable timing we started chewing the cut on this just as uh, Intercontinental Hotels was inking a deal with a big big Spanish operator Iberostar which has effectively bolted uh, Iberostar on as a new brand to the Intercontinental stable. Um, quite a large deal. Um, uh, but it comes at the point where the Spanish hotel market in general has had a very very good summer uh, the, the cash coming in has enabled them some of them to have their the, the Spanish uh, companies to have their best uh, quarters ever uh, in terms of performance it means they've been able to pay down debt and it means there's been precious little in the way of distressed activity and and emergency disposals in the country uh, the the Spanish market is kind of one where the brands manage to lever their way in as best they can um, in certain parts of the of the country it's a very tightly held market with a lot of local owners um, supported by local banks uh, in contrast cities such as Madrid are seeing an influx of luxury hotel brands um, and indeed there's a kind of whole hub effect happening in in Madrid where uh, the influx of luxury hotels is then helping to drive the uh, the food and beverage offering in in the city and up, up the, the pair go together in a, a fantastically symbiotic relationship um, our uh, deal has uh, certainly kind of uh, put it Intercontinental back in in the game as regards uh, all-inclusive resorts, some uh, hot a hot uh, sector in which uh, several others have already uh, stamped their cards. So um, uh, suddenly some excitement in uh, what's going on in Spain. Yeah, and it's an innovative deal, Iberostar, with um, IHG. Um, it's going to be IHG's 18th brand, very firmly joining um, IHG's brand family um, under the Iberostar Beachfront Resorts badge. Um, 
it's 70 hotels 24,300 rooms it's you know it, IHE said it's something like a 3% uplift on its global room count as a result of this deal so it, it's a pretty meaningful thing for them to do and especially as it's targeting this this area of uh, um, in a very sexy area right now the resort area and in, crucially the all-inclusive resort area um, so in, in terms of the where these are located something like 40 percent of the revenues come out of Spain but other key locations are Mexico the Dominican Republic Jamaica and Brazil so this not only is given that uh, Iberia um, exposure but it's also the Americas too um, which is really useful for IHG I would suggest and how IHG have structured this um, it said look uh, Iberostar is going to remain very much an independently operated and owned entity it's just that it's going to be bearing the um, the Iberostar badge is now joining the IHG stable and paying the, the fees. Now, there's um, some form of discount for the first few years, um, but um, it's going to get to a meaningful number within sort of by 2025. Well, by 2027, um, IHG is saying it's going to be more than 40 million US dollars worth of fees coming in as a result of this deal and a similar number going into the system fund um, from these um, Iberostar properties so it, it, it's very healthy from that point of view very asset light as well uh, for IHG so it's quite innovative it reminded me somewhat of what Marriott did with AC mm -hmm hotels where it did took a stake and in incrementally took over that management business um, and I think what we are seeing um, if I look back over the last few years we've seen much more of these smaller mid-sized chains being rolled up finally so we've talked about consolidation in Europe for, for decades and it has now at last got some traction and is really happening. You know, Accor has probably been one of the, the leaders in this. Um, Mervyn Pick is an obvious example. You've also got Wyndham, we've written about recently with the Vienna House, um, and, and and obviously Hyatt as well, um, doing um, it, its own deal in Europe, um, which was quite an innovative structure as well. So you, you've got these now, and I think this is, this is the way the consolidation is going to increasingly uh, take place, um, a mixture of outright acquisition and these sort of different, uh, more innovative structures. I think it's a very exciting time and I think it's proof positive that, that the brands are going to, you know, are vital um, and it's actually, it's, it's very much the playing field is tilting towards the biggest of the brand companies um, and it's not just city centre hotels but also resort hotels too. Now next we're going to have a look at the, uh, what seems to be a constant problem for the uh, hospitality sector off the back of the pandemic and that is finding enough staff. Um, it's not going away and it's uh, an issue that demands uh, creative solutions but also some uh, slightly bigger picture longer term thinking too uh, and notable uh, in terms of that certainly in the UK is um, a, a, an industry-wide initiative called Hospitality Rising which is looking to be 
privately financed and basically it's looking to sell hospitality as a great place to uh, build a career um, looking to really turn around attitudes so that uh, young people will want to get into the sector and can see it as um, more than just a, a waiting job while you're a student but actually an opportunity to get into something that really can give you some fantastic opportunities uh, so that's uh, just one kind of broader initiative but there's already plenty else going on and uh, one thing that we've noted uh, recently is how the big firms are now instead of talking about pay rises as a cost they're call calling them an investment um, so certainly even amongst employers an attitude of change towards uh, how they look after their their people um, but yeah this doesn't seem to be an end in sight this is an international problem and until such time as the sector makes itself more attractive uh, to people relative to going and working in an Amazon warehouse or driving groceries to people's front doors then um, they're gonna have to keep on pushing hard reset is the word I think and this is an opportunity this is once in a generation opportunity to have that reset I think it's almost beyond parody how many times I've heard hospitality industry executives wail about why so few people choose hospitality as a career and yet these same executives stick, seem to stick their fingers in their ears as everyone else explains look you, you don't pay very well the, the, the hours are unsociable and there's little career progression <laughs> and they haven't addressed that um, I think fundamentally you know how do you fix this problem when you pay people a bit more um, now that's easier said than done because obviously if you're alone paying people more um, it's it's quite tricky to do because the, the market conditions are set you know by everybody acting you know individually um in the market and if you you know ramp up your wages you can end up you know being had taking a significant hit on profits and investors um saying well actually i'm going to go elsewhere um people who seem to be able to run their businesses more efficiently mm -hmm. than you so it's a tricky one but we are in a period where there is an opportunity to do this and I'm looking at some of the smartest and sharpest employers who are now taking this opportunity to push wages up. Whitbread is probably my favourite uh, favorite example of this who are pushing wages up significantly above the living wage um, not just the sort of legally enforced minimum wage but what is the the living wage so that they are rising significantly above that so this is what needs to happen here and we need to do that certainly i think what hospitality rising is doing making um you know that the sector looks sexy and it is a sexy sector i mean you know it's a sociable thing to be doing it's a fun thing to be doing it's a dynamic thing to be doing you can often i would suggest in hospitality you can have greater career progression faster be in charge of um you know business in your own right and be running that business quite early on in your career far more so than in most other areas um um, so there's a lot to like about hospitality and if if it if it's if the better employers take this opportunity to tweak it um, um, now um, and, and they can get away with it because of the inflationary environment we have um, 
and the reset that is going on that you know they need to seize this opportunity there is you know pay is going up across the board so if we take the uk the latest pay statistics um july to september um up six percent for those three months year on year um hospitality which is bundled in with wholesaling retailing um they were the highest sector listed um, with a 7.3% rise in those three months. That's ahead of the next placed finance and business services sector at 6.2%. So we're seeing this, this of course is, is actually a pay cut in real terms because of the high rate of inflation but nonetheless these are very significant levels of um, nominal um, increases and there's the opportunity to push this in now and push ahead and really make a difference as we come out of this inflationary environment which as we've just mentioned earlier um, we're likely to be coming out of you know within a year or so um, and if we see these substantial increase increases sticking I think that's going to be very good um, from a hospitality sector uh, positioning as a as a great place to go and work so I think there's a one-off opportunity here which needs to be see needs to be seized um, and I hope that happens and something which I'm I tend to bang on about quite a bit but this is this this notion of um, how there's been this over focus on head knowledge-based work um, enjoying outsized rewards and I think as a society we are having to um, address that issue having to deal with that um, so David Goodhart is my go-to um, uh, writer on this his book Head Hand Heart um, subtitled The Struggle for Dignity and Status in the 21st Century um, hospitality is at the front line of this battle what Goodhart is describing and hospitality is going to be the solution um, in terms of the future for economies part of the experience economy and we're going to deliver the jobs of the future and the careers of the future because the 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 knowledge work is going to shrink because of artificial intelligence um it's not going to disappear and there's not going to be a um you know, lawyers are going to continue to be you know very fabulously well paid as will consultants and investment bankers and all the rest of it but the the overall pyramid um will shrink at the bottom so it'll stay you know the same sort of numbers at the top but those going into it they're just not going to need the same level the same sort of numbers we've historically seen going into these professions going forward thanks to um, artificial intelligence I would suggest um, and this means that hospitality um, and sectors like hospitality in the experience economy have to step up and offer their future careers in society so I think this is a a huge opportunity for hospitality itself to reset and for society itself also to come in and engage with um, how you know the, the the overall structure of the economy okay is now it's time for our five star and no star awards of the week and andrew for five the five star award you're heading to that uh, covid outlier china i believe yeah well finally i mean well you wrote a good piece um in this week's issue chris about china um uh, more broadly in terms of what's likely in terms of deal flow etc um but uh, my commentary on that was really look the th key problem in china is this zero mm -hmm. covid nonsense and it's gone from hero to zero um 
in the space of a year where it was seen as fantastic in 2021 but now looks like a disaster in 2022 in terms of this let's shut everything down um and it, it simply it, it well we're, we're seeing riots taking place in the country now in the people's republic of china um it's in direct relation to this because it's just destroying uh, people's ability to make to to they're destroying people's livelihoods effectively and it's got to be reversed and there are signs that the, that the chinese authorities are finally yielding to that and saying yep okay um we're gonna have to change um so it's a sort of five stars it's a uh, uh, begrudging five stars but it's five stars for you know about blinking time um <laughs> okay five stars. and i think you're you've 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 opted to choose a no star award uh following your visit to the world cup in guitar yes so um <clears throat> listeners can probably hear i've got a slight sniffle um which i managed to pick up over there in the middle east but um so the thing that really greeted um while i was there is this um now i've I suppose it's a slightly controversial comment piece which we're we're putting out in this week's issue, um, and I've, I've headlined it: "Woke Imperialism in Qatar and Beyond," um, and it's this notion of you know the Western worldview being imposed on everybody else in the world. Um, now, I absolutely believe in human rights and basic human rights: the right of LGBTQ plus, the rights of women, etc., etc. Um, but um, and I, I have grave misgivings about the way we seem to think our way is the only way and everybody has to fall in line with us and it is a form of imperialism a moral imperialism I would suggest which the West is imposing on, on the rest of the world now if you look at where the rest of the world is it, so let's just take this this issue of LGBT rights which has been a big bone of contention in Qatar um, um, and the World Cup um, there are just 28 UN member states which is 15% of the total that have laws in place which recognize um, same-sex relationships now I would like to live in a world where there's much more in fact where everybody um, all of the countries recognize same-sex same relationships but that is not the world we have and um, we have 85% of countries don't recognize that um, and if we are going to live in the world as it is rather than a world as we'd like it to be we're going to have to accept that they don't see things as we see them and get on with that um, and we can't run around trying to impose our worldview on everyone else uh, it was fascinating that sir tony blair this week's come out now obviously blair was um um a key cheerleader for the whole invasion of iraq by the us and the uk and a sorted um people um but um which i i would suggest was an attempt by the west to impose its values on that country and um, through military means um he is now criticizing uh, attempts by some in the west to impose its values on a sovereign country um qatar um and he says you know he's, he's describes it as futile and i would largely agree with him i think it's sort of uh virtue signaling and it's not really doing a lot to help matters um so i i think you know travel and tourism in particular um is vulnerable to this we can't have a travel and tourism um 
uh, industry which only deals with the uh, 28 countries which are you know that tick the boxes in terms of um, the rights agenda it, it's a global industry and we have to engage with those places which aren't so pleasant in terms of how they deal with their human rights you can stand firm very much and i believe you should stand firm on on human rights and what and that you believe in them but believing in them those those rights does not um uh, give you the right to impose them on other people and you don't have to um try to force those beliefs on others um um, that's not a sign of weakness in in your own beliefs and i think it's adjusting to this accepting this and it's a difficult area and corporates have to be very aware of this tightrope they're walking here um so you know it's great to see the likes of accor for example you know having the rainbow colors on its logo um but at the same time it is uh selling contracts in qatar it's selling contracts in uh, kingdom of saudi arabia selling contracts in the uae um, parts of africa all those and many other bits of the middle east where it's still illegal to be gay now actually balancing that that ability to do business in those places but at the same time maintaining you know as an organization that you are going to be uh, fair and equitable and you're going to have diversity within your organization which is an absolute must um, but being able to do business in those areas at the same time you've got to be quite careful about how you position on this and i think we got it very badly wrong with what, what how this has been approached um i would point the finger at say the bbc which had this sort of monologue from um presenter gary lineker about the human rights abuses in qatar um it was noticeable he didn't bother doing that when it came to russia or when it came to china um but somehow a smaller country like qatar he thinks it's uh, the, the the appropriate thing to do i think that was wrong and i think um what we should be doing is saying look um you know qatar are, are running their their society in a way which is different to ours we don't like it we disagree with it but ultimately um we're just standing firm in how we want our society to be run and leave it at that and lineker should just get on with talking about football um and i should just get on probably and on that sober note we'll say goodbye for now